Let us begin our time by reading from the Gospel of John, not in chapter 20 as Pastor Jeremy did, but back in John 1, verses 19 through 29. For it is here that we find the build-up to the story and really the context in which our discussion will be focused today. Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, we read these words. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the word of God. Please be seated. If I were to ask all of you, what sort of animals come to mind when you think of characteristics like bravery or strength or power or, or something that's adventurous? What sort of animals would come to your mind? I trust many of us would think of, of animals like lions. Where they represent strength and, and boldness. Many of us would think of other predatory, powerful animals that, that speak to us the symbolism of power and strength. And when we think of those spirits of, of being adventurous or playful or loving, perhaps our hearts would turn towards those animals that we hold dear to us, animals we keep as pets. For some of you, maybe that's a dog. And you think of how playful and loving and adventurous a dog is, and to you that represents adventure. To some of you, while I cannot understand it, you might think of a cat I don't get it, but I understand some of you like cats. And so when you think of love and playfulness, you think of those animals that I only consider associated with scratching and hissing. But these are the animals that we hold near and dear, and, and we understand why, because they're lovable creatures, and they represent the sort of characteristics that we would like to be said about ourselves, don't we? We like to be loyal. We like to be thought of as, as brave, as courageous, as adventurous, as strong and independent. And we understand there's a good reason why these same animals are not just loved by us, but they're used in countless childhood stories and movies. These are the animals that, that we imagine going on adventures on. These are animals that we imagine having independent spirits able to provide for themselves. These animals are inspiring, to say the least. There are, of course, many other animals who are a bit less exciting. An, an animal that you wouldn't really want to go on an adventure with. Amongst those animals, no doubt, would be Sheep or lambs. A sheep would make a terrible sidekick in any children's adventure story. It's not going to get very far before it gets killed by the first challenge. I imagine a sheep would make a terrible pet, although I know very little about sheep, so I don't know, maybe they would make a good pet. 
But sheep, or lambs in this case, are not animals that really inspire us, nor are they the type of animal we would like to associate ourselves with. I don't know how many times in the last year I've heard people speak of the fact that they refuse to be sheeple like the rest, right? And in that, there's that derogatory assumption that being a sheep or like a sheep is somehow negative. It's terrible. It's not the type of animal we would assume would play any central role in any significant story of adventure, any story that can make a significant impact on us, any story that would inspire. And yet, when we read through Scripture, and as we come back to our text in John today, it is significant and important for us to see that it's that animal that God places on center stage in the greatest story ever told. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, it is that sheep, it is a lamb that God uses to represent his people's need, to represent his awe-inspiring love and provision, and ultimately as a picture of the acceptance he offers to those who follow after him. And so all that a sheep, or in this case a lamb, might not necessarily inspire the greatest sense of wonder in us initially, my prayer as we look at it today is that truly there is no greater animal to identify with. There is no greater story than the story of the one who identifies himself as the lamb who has been sent. And so as we consider this lowly creature today, we'll look at it in in three acts, three pictures of the lamb in Scripture. We'll see that lamb as it is required. We'll see the lamb as it is provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we'll see the lamb that is accepted as evidenced in Jesus Christ's resurrection, the entire reason why we're here today. With that being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer. And we'll consider again the origins of this lamb, why the lamb would have been so significant in the days of John and the days of God's people in the Gospel of John. With that being said, let me open us up in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, words fail us when we try to, we try to capture just the excitement of this morning. Words fail us when we try to capture just how grateful and thankful and awestruck we are by the story of your son, Jesus Christ. God, so many of us have heard this story countless times. We've heard it since our childhood. And yet I pray even for those of us who have heard it a thousand times that today you might cause this story to strike us new. Might we be amazed by it more than ever before? Might we be humbled by it, God? For those who are here who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray today you save their soul. I pray today they understand the blood of the Lamb is offered on their behalf if they simply just believe and repent. And as such, God, I pray that today becomes the greatest day of their own lives. God, remove all distractions from us. Cause us to be transfixed by the glory of the Lamb that you have provided. And as we leave this place today, might we, like John the Baptist, strive to be known only as those who point the way back to you, who point the way back to your Son, Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, might you be pleased and honored by our time this morning. For it is in your name and because of your work that we're able to be here. We pray these things, amen. Well, in order to appreciate the significance of the Lamb, the significance of the fact that it is the Lamb that John associates with Jesus Christ, it's important to understand the the backdrop, the background of, of where this Lamb imagery is taken from. If you were with us last week, 
or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll understand that the language used by John the Baptist in John 1, and even all of the, the, the context that's given in John 1, is all borrowing heavily from that older story, namely the story of the Exodus. This makes good sense, for the Exodus was the story of Israel, the story that defined the people of God's past, present, as well as their future hope. And central to that story was this idea of a lamb, a lamb that was required by God. To see that in all of its detail, I ask you to turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. For there you see this first image, or at least one of the significant images of the Old Testament, of that lamb which was required for God's people. As you turn back to the book of Exodus, it will be good, of course, to review the basic storyline. Those of you who've read it, We'll remember that the book of Exodus begins with the people of God in an incredibly difficult place. They are enslaved in Egypt. They're suffering under harsh, wicked oppression. And as a result, in response, they are crying out to Yahweh, asking God to to deliver them. Asking God, please remember us, your people. Remember the promises you made to Abraham, our forefathers, when you said we would become a great nation. God, what happened to those promises? Where are you, God? God, in his grace and faithfulness, hears the prayers of his people. And in response, he decides to deliver his people. He sends those great leaders, specifically Moses, to them for the purpose of leading them out of that harsh, wicked rule of Egypt. But God does not simply pluck the people of Israel or the Hebrew people out of Egypt. No, he, he does something that showcases his power in a much more grand manner. He sends a series of plagues upon the Egyptian people. And each of these plagues is intended to demonstrate not how great Moses is, nor how great the Hebrew people are, but rather they're intended to show how awe-inspiring the God of the Hebrew people is. They're to show that no one can even begin to touch his power, no so-called Egyptian God, much less any Pharaoh. No, Yahweh's different. This God is different. And so he sends a series of plagues, all of which would have struck terror in the hearts of the Egyptians. All of which showed God's unique power as well as his unique love for his people, those Hebrew people that were enslaved. Each of those plagues was significant, of course, but by far the most terrifying, the most significant, and ultimately the greatest plague that led to their deliverance was that last plague, the plague of death. You see God speaking through Moses and describing that plague in Exodus 11. In Exodus 11, verse 4, Moses says this, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who sits behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Here we see the terrifying plague promised by God. This plague that wasn't just darkness like one of the others. It wasn't just gnats or frogs. It was death. Death that God would bring down upon every household in Egypt, thereby taking the firstborn of these families, the firstborn even of the cattle, thereby bringing about great mourning, But as God mentions here and elsewhere, 
What makes this plague particularly fascinating is that it wouldn't touch the households of the Hebrew people. They would somehow be preserved from all this death, from all this mourning. And the question, of course, is how? How would they be preserved? How would they be saved from this death? Well, the means of that preservation is detailed in Exodus 12, where we see this depiction of the lamb that God requires. For in preparation of this curse, God tells everyone in each household of the Hebrew people that they must present their own lamb, a sort of substitution that will stand in the place of their firstborn. That substitutionary lamb could not just be any lamb. If you read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, you'll see the the numerous details, numerous qualifications that must mark that lamb. Amongst those qualifications, you read things regarding its age. You read details regarding how it's to be sacrificed, and you read one particularly important detail in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, where Moses says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. A detail speaks to the fact that the lamb must not be any ordinary lamb, it must be without defect. This is an object of great value to the Hebrew people. But they must take that lamb, which is without defect, without any injury, and they're to slaughter it, and they're to apply the blood of that lamb to their doorpost. And God promises his people that if they do this, if they provide the necessary lamb, if they sacrifice it in the particularly right way, if they apply that blood to their doorpost, then they will be preserved. And just as God promises, you read in Exodus the story of this curse, this final plague, and death visits Egypt. And firstborn are taken, and there is great mourning and no doubt great shock when they realize the Hebrew people have somehow been preserved. This must have been shocking and confusing to the Egyptian people, but to the Hebrew people, it should not have been a surprise, nor should it have been confusing, for they knew exactly what happened. They knew that they were rescued by the substitutionary lamb. They knew that their deliverance was given to God through the death, death of another just as Yahweh had promised. And thus God delivers his people through substitution, through the death of lamb. It's a beautiful story, an incredible story, and eventually it ends up with the people of God in the promised land just as God guaranteed. And yet as glorious of a story as it is, as precious as that required lamb must have seemed to them, the story of Israel doesn't necessarily have a very satisfactory ending. I don't want to be careful how I say that, because this is their story, of course. But as glorious as the story is, the people of God never really experience that rest that ultimately they're crying out for. Even though they get out of Egypt because of the lamb, even though they make it to the promised land, they're not there for very long before they realize that the problem isn't just Egypt. The problem is sin. The problem is that outside of Egypt, there's a lot of other nations that will gladly oppress the people of God. And there are a lot of other so-called gods they must go to war with. Not only that, but the Israelites were given a constant reminder that they themselves were also sinful. They themselves also had this indwelling sin that they had to be purified from if they could remain in the presence of God. When they failed to do this, when they failed to hold off those other nations, when they failed to worship God and God alone, that impurity ultimately was punished. And they were driven out of the promised land time and time and time again. And in all their experiences, whether they were in the promised land or the wilderness, the people of God had this constant imagery. 
this image that was symbolized by this lamb. For you see in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, that God tells them that this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You see that God did not intend the Passover to be the end of the story. He intended this Passover, the story of the Exodus, to be this annual reminder. A reminder of God's faithfulness, but also a reminder of Israel's greater need. That greater need for inner purity. That greater need for worldwide judgment. That greater need not just for some lamb that they would sacrifice yearly, but for something or someone greater than the lamb. But who on earth could deliver them from that complex problem? Who on earth could be worthy to lead them as as a king, as a ruler, as well as the sacrifice which purifies them? As they asked themselves that question, they in essence were asking themselves the question that every single one of us is forced to ask. For while we live in a culture that is far removed from animal sacrifice, I don't know all of you personally, but I'm pretty sure none of you are doing that regularly. I think it's illegal. Even though we don't do that, we recognize we still live in a world with very complex problems, don't we? We like to believe our problems are always simple, are always external, Our problems are some politician we don't like. Our politicians are some neighbor we don't get along with. You know, as a kid, I remember my problem in school was always that my teacher wasn't doing his or her job, and if I just had a better teacher, I promised mom I'd do better, right? It's always someone else's fault. As we get older, it's always our spouse's fault. It's our boss's fault. It's always the fault of someone else. And if we could just fix our circumstances, then everything would be right as rain. Everything would be beautiful. We would be at rest. But we all recognize that's not true, don't we? Because regardless of how radically different our circumstances might be, all of us are still impure on the inside. All of us still fall short. And this last year has has forced us all to see that, I think. It's forced us all to re-examine just why we are so dissatisfied. And even as we come out of it by the grace of God, even as we come towards the end, hopefully, of COVID shutdowns and and the fear that has ruled so many of us, we recognize that our problems have not all been fixed, for there are other diseases. And regardless of the political tension we feel now, there's going to be more political tension next generation. The same problems go over and over and over again. And so like the Israelites, every single one of us are forced to ask ourselves, who or what could possibly fix this? Who could fix us? What could possibly bring the rest that we so desperately need? I pray that you have felt that internal struggle. Maybe some of you feel it this morning more than ever before. I pray that it has kept you up at night as you've wrestled with this, this dissatisfaction, this longing, this desire that cannot be met by anything that this world offers. And I pray that like the Israelites, when you see the requirements that God has set before you, you might also, you might be glory, glory you might be blessed and encouraged by God's requirements, but you all must also leave, be left in a sense of longing. And it's only when you understand that longing, that question of who can possibly save us, you can then appreciate the shocking announcement of John the Baptist. For as the people of God are longing for that purity, longing for that lamb, longing for that Messiah, suddenly they hear John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
Behold the lamb who can actually fix that internal problem. It is here we move on to our second point where incredibly, the Bible tells us that we do not simply have a lamb required, but we have a lamb provided by God himself. And that is what we find in the work and person of Jesus Christ. This idea that Jesus was the lamb of God is something that is very clearly proclaimed throughout the ministry of Jesus. First and foremost, you see this in the text we already read. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, in light of all that we just said about the Exodus, in light of the countless sacrifices that have been made, even amongst the audience of John the Baptist, you can imagine why this declaration would perhaps seem so shocking and confusing. Lambs were not strong. Lambs were creatures to be slaughtered. And that slaughtering process was a bloody one. It was a gruesome thing to behold. And so what on earth could John be saying when he's proclaiming this man that no one knows about is a lamb of God? Well, there's some debate as to what John specifically means when he refers to Jesus as the lamb. Some people, of course, recognize, or we all should recognize, that John the Baptist's parents had been told that John would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so I think we can safely assume that John understood that that Jesus was fulfilling that role of the Messiah. But even with that understanding, it seems John the Baptist himself did not fully appreciate the depth of this proclamation. For later on in Jesus' own ministry, as John the Baptist is eventually imprisoned and waiting his own death, John sends his own disciples to Jesus to basically ask, "Uh, what's going on, Jesus? Are you the guy? Have we made a mistake here? Is there someone else, something greater that we are waiting to see? And so while John the Baptist understood in part this proclamation, it seems he did not understand it in whole. Yet while he did not understand it, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus Christ clearly understood this because he proclaimed the same thing over and over in his ministry. And as disturbing as it was for the audience of John the Baptist to hear it, it was far more disturbing for Jesus' own disciples to hear Jesus say this over and over and over again. But Jesus persist in making this proclamation. Now at times, Jesus' proclamation regarding this identity is, is a bit cryptic. You can read of how Jesus compares himself to a serpent being raised up in the wilderness. It's an odd tale. At other times, Jesus speaks of the sign of Jonah as this, this foretaste, as this symbol of his own death. And in these words, you can understand why people might be confused. There are other points in time, however, when Jesus' proclamation is far more clear than that. For we're told in the Gospels that Jesus is regularly telling his disciples of his impending suffering and death and resurrection. We see this clearly, more clearly, as as his mission continues forward, and we perhaps see it most clearly from the lips of Jesus as he celebrates that Passover meal with his disciples. In fact, if you would turn back to Matthew 26... For Matthew 26, you see one of these explicit proclamations made by Christ that, again, must have been so shocking to his disciples in light of the imagery that Jesus cites. As you might remember, this meal, the Passover meal, was that which they celebrated every year to remember the Exodus. It's that meal they took every year to remember that Passover lamb, And it's in the midst of eating this meal that we find this account in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. There we read, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, 
this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it, gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, consider how incredible a message this must have been for the disciples. For each of these disciples undoubtedly would have celebrated this Passover from childhood. They knew the symbolism of the Passover lamb. They understood what it meant regarding their future hope, that future exodus. And yet here was Jesus, this this man that they've walked alongside with for years at this point in time, and he's taking these elements and he's saying, no, this is my body now. This is my blood. I'm the lamb. And with my body and blood, I'm offering a new covenant. As surprising as this would have been to hear by the disciples, it, in essence, is the exact same thing that John the Baptist himself proclaimed. John the Baptist proclaimed it, perhaps unknowingly, Jesus Christ proclaimed it fully, fully understanding what it entailed. And yet, regardless of how many times Jesus proclaimed this, there's still that question of what qualifies Jesus? How could he possibly serve as this lamb? For if you recall back in Exodus chapter 12, not just any lamb could play the part, right? It had to be spotless. It had to be of a, of a certain age. It had to be sacrificed in a certain way. How on earth could any person fulfill the many qualifications of that Passover lamb? Well, incredibly, what we find throughout the Gospels is Jesus proves himself to be qualified for this role both in his life as well as in his death. For in his life, Jesus Christ is sinless, meaning he is without any defect of any kind. We are told this in passages like Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without any sin. Peter references the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 1 as, as he was referred to as our sinless, perfect lamb. And so just as a lamb in the Old Testament had to be without any moral defect, so too Jesus was able to show him that, yeah, I'm without any defect. Every thought Jesus had, pure. Every word Jesus spoke was in perfect alignment with the Father's will. Every single thing that Jesus did, every second of Jesus' life was lived in perfect alignment with the will of the Father. That's incredible. And it was essential. For if Jesus tripped up even once, he would be disqualified. If Jesus had made one sinful choice, he could not have served as our lamb, and yet he lives his entire life in perfection and perfect righteousness. And even as he comes to the end of his life, we see him maintaining these intricate qualifications. You can read of these qualifications when you just consider, for instance, the timing of Jesus' sacrifice. For as we just recognized on Friday, Good Friday, the, di- the day of Christ's crucifixion, we understand that Jesus did not just choose any time to be crucified, did he? Rather, when was he being crucified? It was the Passover. It was the exact same time that the Jews were required to sacrifice their lamb. It was the exact same time that God had required from Exodus. Jesus was even fulfilling that law. If you read through the passion of Christ, his crucifixion, time and time again, you see the author reference all of these prophecies being fulfilled. Time and time again, you see all of these laws, all of these steps, all of these qualifications that Jesus is just checking off. Time and time again then, 
we see Jesus proving himself in his birth, in his life, and even in his final moments that he is clearly being presented as the qualified lamb of God. You see this final act in Jesus' life if you turn over with me to John chapter 19. For it is in John 19 that we read of all these fulfillments. It is in John 19 that we see this brutal crucifixion, this shocking sacrifice. In John chapter 19, verses 1 through 30, there are numerous details that highlight the tragic end of Christ. They highlight the way in which his enemies berated him. They highlight the way in which his enemies mocked him. Detail after detail is given that show that to the outside observer, it would appear as if Rome is in control. It would appear as if Jesus' enemies are victorious. And this would have been the clearest as we come to the end. For pick up the story with me, if you will. In John chapter 19, beginning in verse 25. There we read, standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sisters, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Or sorry, 19 verse 25. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing all the things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. He died there hanging as a bloody mess. He died there beaten and mocked and scorned. And as he died, he died much like the countless lambs that were slaughtered before him. And as the world watched, as his own disciples watched, they all assumed the same thing, that Jesus had failed. That all those teachings were for nothing. That all that nonsense about John the Baptist claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, claiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God, all that is just symbolic. All of that is just some fleeting message of hope, but all of it fell short to provide the ending to the story of the Exodus that the people of God so desperately waited to see. And as the disciples stood there hopeless, it's important for us to remember just how sad of a moment this must have been. For again, if the story ends with Jesus lifeless on a cross, the story is so, so depressing. And it is so sad that it is at this point in time that the vast majority of humanity moves on from the scene. For even today, you ask your average person what they think about Jesus, what they think about the Easter story, and they're willing to go as far as to say that Jesus is a great example of sacrifice. 
People love to tell the story of Jesus and the fact that it inspires hope. It's a picture of love. It's a picture of, of service. Jesus as a figure is thrown into countless novels because, again, it's a picture of martyrdom. It's a, it's a picture of passion. And people assume that, that that's enough. People assume that a life lived well ending in this sacrificial death is enough to qualify for a beautiful story. But the disciples knew better than that. They understood that a life lived well ending in death was yet another sad ending in the ever-going story of their hope in Yahweh, their hope for a Messiah. Yet as we finish that tale... As we go back to those verses we just read, again, we are struck, or we ought to be struck with the fact that Jesus himself clearly did not view this sacrifice in the same way. From verse 30 again, we read, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the Spirit. I don't know if the disciples could hear those words of Christ, or at least all of them, no doubt, could hear. It was passed along, so, so some, no doubt, heard these words of Christ. But regardless of who heard these words, it is safe to assume that they again would cause great confusion. What on earth does Jesus mean? It's finished? What's finished, Jesus? Is Jesus simply speaking of his life? Is he saying, okay, well, that's it. I've done what I can. So long. No. No, the words of Jesus are far deeper than that, far more inspiring than that. For we understand that when Jesus says it is finished, in part he is saying the role of the lamb is finished. The lamb required is finished. The law is finished. It has all been fulfilled for he has done absolutely everything the law required. And so as Jesus dies, he does not die as some sad sacrifice. He dies triumphantly because he dies fully knowing what's going to happen. And what is going to happen is ultimately what we know today is the reason why we celebrate. What we see as the story continues is that Jesus was not simply this, this lamb required. Jesus was not simply this beautiful picture of provision by God. Jesus was the lamb whose work was finally accepted. The lamb whose work accomplished everything those previous lambs could not do. That acceptance of Jesus is proven, it's evidenced in the next chapter. John 20, where we see not just Jesus on a cross, but Jesus resurrected from the dead. Pastor Jeremy read this story earlier, but I encourage you to pick it up again in John chapter 20 and, and understand just how beautiful, how joyful, how shocking these words must have been for those first disciples. We pick up that story again in John chapter 20, verse 11 through 19. There. After his disciples had already found that empty tomb, we read, but Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she, stood, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Yet again, as we read this text, we, remind, we remember that the disciples had no hope for the resurrection. They had no understanding that that was the end of the story that Jesus always had in mind. That was the next chapter that God had long foretold. And so when they arrive at the tomb, they fully expect to find a decaying body. They fully expect to find a body that they can just continue to prepare out of respect. But as they come, of course, they find this empty tomb. And they're perplexed. The disciples find the empty tomb and it seems they partially understand, but still they run away and we read later that they're still fearful, still not knowing what this all means. And as they run away, they leave Mary standing there. Mary who is heartbroken. She is crushed because not only has her beloved teacher been brutally executed, but some criminal has stolen his body as one last insult. And so she's crushed. She's hopeless. And even when she first sees Jesus, she doesn't understand what all this means. And yet as he begins to speak and as she understands, we find this glorious word spoken not just to Jesus' crucifixion, but to that acceptance to what the resurrection means both for Jesus as well as for his disciples. You see that meaning tied up in the message that Jesus gives to Mary in verse 17. Look with me again and and see these glorious words. Jesus says, stop clinging to me. It seems Mary is overwhelmed and clinging to Christ. Jesus says, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Understand the glory of what Jesus is speaking here. Understand what this means regarding what his work as the Lamb has accomplished. For in these few words, we see Jesus saying something truly glorious about the Son's relationship to the Father, don't we? For Jesus is yet again affirming the love and the unity that the Father and Son share. The Apostle Paul in Philippians talks about this unity and talks about the glory that the Father hands down to the Son as a result of his resurrection. As a result of of his glorious work on the cross and in his death and in his perfect obedience. That love has already been confirmed earlier in the Gospels or the Father at Jesus' baptism said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The resurrection has just confirmed that fact. That alone is glorious. That relationship alone should cause us to, to stand in awe of our glorious resurrected King. Yet that's only part of the glorious message here. For look again at what he says, not about his relationship with God, but about the disciples' relationship with God. For he says, I go to ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Where are the disciples at this point? Are they bravely speaking the truth of Jesus to the dying world? Are they speaking of their confidence in the resurrected Messiah? No. They're holed up, terrified of the Jewish leaders, convinced Jesus is dead, at least most of them at this point in time, it seems, 
convinced he's dead and convinced they're next. They're petrified. They're cowardly. And yet God says they're children of God. They're beloved by God because Jesus' blood has covered them at this point in time. And so go tell those disciples who are so afraid that I go, but I go back to my God and their God. Tell those disciples who feel utterly alone as orphans and tell them I go back to my Father who is also your Father. Tell them that message, Mary. And even as Jesus appears in verse 19, he offers an equally glorious message as he greets those terrified, cowardly disciples, not with a word of shame or reproach, but with that word of peace. Peace, disciples. Rest, disciples. As Jesus speaks this message, he is declaring that the work that was long foretold, long promised through those original Passover lambs has in fact been accomplished and fully accepted by the blood of the Lamb of God who doesn't simply crush his enemies, he takes away the sins of the world. He makes us pure, causing us to stand at ease and with confidence in the presence of the almighty God of all creation. It is that message of God's provision, that message of God's acceptance that he gives to the disciples. And it's that message of acceptance that every single one of us who are in Christ still hear today. As we examine this, as we consider this, what we ultimately understand then is that proclamation of John the Baptist that in Jesus we have the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we have a statement that was exponentially grander than anything John could have understood. In the story of Jesus, we have something that is infinitely more impressive than any detail that that story of the Exodus contains. In Jesus, we do not simply have a brand new story. We have that final chapter that the people of God so desperately needed. The chapter that brings them and brings us into the promised land, into his eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be touched by this world, regardless of the difficulties that come. In the risen Christ, the lamb that was required has been provided and has been accepted by our Father. The only question that remains is are you covered by the blood of that lamb? Do you understand that need? Many of you are here this morning, and perhaps you view Easter as a, as a beautiful story, again, of love. In Jesus, you see this great example of sacrifice, of humility. But if that's it, if that's all he is to you, well, he's no more useful to you at this moment than some slaughtered lamb from a century ago. No, it is only when you understand that he's not just that precious picture of humility, but he is the risen and ruling king. It's only when you have confessed your sins, unbeliever, and that you've sought forgiveness in him, that you're covered by that blood, that you too are given new life. And so, unbeliever, do you see the Lamb of God? Do you see the need you have and do you see the fulfillment that is only given in Jesus? and is only offered to you through belief in Jesus. I pray this morning you might understand that that is your central problem. 
regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your difficulties, that is your greatest problem, your own sin. And apart from confessing that sin before God, apart from seeking out forgiveness by his blood, you will remain impure and you stand under his judgment. So unbeliever, believe today. Place your faith in Christ. As always, please, if you have questions, let me know. I will happily talk about this with you today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us hear those words of John the Baptist anew this morning. And as we hear, behold the Lamb, let us truly behold the Lamb more clearly than ever before. Let us be shocked as we are reminded of our own filth, of our own shameful sin. Let us be so grateful for the fact that God does not view us in that shame. But God's provided for us the lamb we need, the lamb we could never provide. And because we're covered by his blood, he sees us as his own children. Let us be thankful for that. Let us rejoice in that. And let us be so quick to point others out so they too can enjoy that life. As we close here in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to corporately again remember this lamb of God as we partake in communion. As we do this, we do exactly what Jesus Christ commanded of his disciples. We remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ that was offered on our behalf. But as we do this, we do not do this as if we're attending a funeral service for a long lost friend. We do this as a foretaste to the grand party that awaits us in God's eternal kingdom. We do this remembering that our king lives, our lamb was accepted, and our lamb will greet us someday in God's eternal kingdom. And so if you're a believer as the band plays here in a moment, we invite you to come partake in this. As they play, you can take each of those cups. Each one contains that bread and the juice, which signify that body and blood of Jesus. And again, if you've placed your faith in him, we encourage you to partake in that. If you've not done that yet, remain seated and use this time this morning to profess faith in Jesus. And as we prepare ourselves for that, let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, God, we could never provide that which is required for our our purification. We're too sinful, God. We're too fallen. And God, you know that better than we know it ourselves. And yet, God, you have provided us the means of purification that are exponentially greater than anything we could have ever imagined. You provided for us a story that is exponentially more awe-inspiring than any story ever told. And you've invited us to be a part of that story. And so, God, as we close our time here, as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, God, I pray we do it as a means of celebration. As brothers and sisters in Christ, might we do it as a unified family, remembering this is the only thing that matters. And as we do this, let let us cause us to overlook the many other causes for disunity that still exist. Might we do this as a celebration, and God, for those of of, of us here who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray this is a time when you bring them to that saving faith in you, God. We praise you, God, and we praise you, Jesus. Bless this time of communion, we pray.